From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon, Scott Shantz with you filling in for Jill Bennett today. It's my pleasure to be here and we are going to start things off hot. We're talking about guns. Bill C-21 has passed. Uh, the Senate has agreed Bill C-21 should go ahead. This is, implements all sorts of restrictions on firearms. This has been in like a long time coming. There has been restrictions on the purchase and transfer of handguns. This bill includes uh, homemade guns, ghost guns, as it were, assault style rifles, uh, uh, handguns, all sorts of things. Now, I just want to start this segment by saying I like guns. I'm a gun guy. It's okay if you don't like guns. That's totally fine. I respect your right to not like them. I don't own any guns. I've just gone shooting with friends who do have guns, and I found it fun. That's all I know about guns. I just want to start that by saying I'm not anti-gun. Uh, and joining me today uh, to talk about some of this stuff and where it goes and what it means for us as Canadians is Daniel Fritter. He's the owner of Caliber Magazine. They're Canada Canada's largest gun magazine. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for being here today. Happy to be here. So I'm going to just ask this as a first question because I'm not really sure the answer, but I have a feeling. Do we have a gun problem in Canada? Not yet, um, but it's it's headed that way based on the current stats. Uh, gun crime has been rising the last three to five years. Okay, because I... I feel like Canada is a really different place than, you know, the States when it, when it, when it, you know, when we think of gun crime. So this legislation, explain to us how this is going to change and either increase or decrease gun ownership in Canada. I don't think it's going to have a dramatic increase on or, or down on actual gun ownership, uh, but it's certainly changing what gun ownership looks like in Canada. Uh, we have seen in the last few years, especially since COVID, but in the last five years, we've seen uh, more widespread adoption of firearms amongst millennials and um, Gen Z, I guess, the, the Zoomers. Um, and as the boomers and older generations kind of get older and, and move away, move to the States, that kind of thing, dispense with some of their hobbies as they look to retire, uh, it's shifting towards younger people. And what's interesting is that C-21 and the work uh, around the OIC and the rifle bans that the Trudeau government has done in the last three years uh, have significantly reduced access to the very exact firearms that younger people are trying to get, handguns, AR-15s, more modern type stuff. So is the concern that because of this type of legislation, people are going to try to get like black market guns? Is that an issue? I think this legislation might actually create black market guns in the same way that we legalized marijuana to remove it from the black market. This government is criminalizing guns in the exact same way the drugs used to be. Um, They're banning it, saying you can't have this, you can't have this. And, And I don't understand, you know. If you logically think that legalizing marijuana is going to reduce its power in the black market, its its financial viability as a black market good, how banning guns won't do the same thing. And moreover, uh, with C-21, for example, this is a handgun ban. The serialized part of a handgun that you could no longer buy or sell is the frame, the actual part. Um, the frame is also the part that most 3D printed guns use as the 3D printed part. A lot of them then use commercial produced barrels and slides and triggers and other parts. Um, by saying to a bunch of people in this economic standpoint that, like, you know, the handguns you've got, you can't sell because that's what C21 does. I own handguns. I cannot sell them anymore. I have to keep them until I die, at which point they will be destroyed by the police. That is what the law requires. The only option I've got is to give them to the police beforehand and have them destroy them for me earlier. There's no compensation or anything. Um, 
in a situation like this where you have people suffering financially, mortgages are going up, food's getting expensive, I don't think it's beneficial to tell people that, hey, this thing that you had that was worth $1,000 or $1,500 before, well, now it's worthless. Because now when your kind of sketchy cousin comes up to you at a barbecue and says, hey, you know, do you still have that Glock? You, yeah, I can't sell it. They go, well, could you sell me the barrel? Right. You go like, well, how could this go wrong? It's, it's my cousin. You know, he's into some weird stuff. But I mean, it's just a gun barrel. What's the big deal? And the government won't let me sell it. And I could use the 500 bucks. So voila. Yeah. You know, I think that's where the, the drug argument is the exact same one, where if your neighbor was growing some pot before, it was a little bit more sketchy, more likely to end up on the black market. Whereas now... Uh, you don't have that problem with marijuana, but we're creating it with guns. And, yeah, and it 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 all seems pretty obvious when you know, sort of when you lay it when you lay it out that way, and you sort of like, and I mean, again, like I don't know, right? Like I'm a fan of of going shooting. I've gone shooting, and I've I've really enjoyed it. And as someone who kind of looks around, like I'm never worried about you know uh, someone in a mall carrying a gun. It just doesn't. It, I'd maybe that's a thing that I should be worried about, but I'm just not. I don't feel like that's a, a, an issue here. Is like people having handguns and it it being totally out of control. But yeah, it really does feel like this is this is where this is going the way that you're sort of framing it and i was going to ask that question so could i go on to like ebay or i don't know facebook marketplace or even other like and and buy gun parts like not an actual gun but gun parts yes and that was actually one of the amendments that was proposed by believe it or not pro gun advocates uh, who are giving testimony to the house of commons and to the senate on bill c21 trying to kind of correct some of this bill as best that, you know, people in the gun community could, uh, they actually said, hey, you know, maybe instead of banning handguns, we should regulate parts. So you would need a gun license, the same license that I have that handgun. They said, maybe you should have that license to buy the barrel for a handgun or the magazine for a handgun, because these are these are components that are a little bit more difficult to make, especially barrels. Um, and regulating those and controlling those would be vastly superior than just saying, I mean, like you said, there's not a lot of logic in going, well, if you own a handgun now, you're going to own it forever. You have to keep your PAL, your license current forever, et cetera. It doesn't, that doesn't really have a dramatic input on crime in any foreseeable way. But regulating parts, absolutely. Would. And right now, I don't actually think, if you were to go down to the States and you were to drive your car down there, go to a gun shop and buy 100 Glock barrels, you could drive back to Canada, you could hand them the receipt. And I'm sure the CBSA would have some pointed questions about why you were, but you're not actually breaking a law if you were to do that. Wow. You just drive up and go, yeah, I've got all these. I pay my taxes on them because gun parts are unregulated. If you're not licensed, you can walk into any gun store in Canada and buy a magazine, like a gun magazine. Like not my magazine, the printed right. one. You buy that no matter what. But the kind that holds the bullets that go in the gun, yeah. you yeah, can just yeah. buy those. They're not, they're not controlled. Uh, and that's sort of the thing where a lot of the people that are on our side are saying, look, there's a lot of room to, especially with regards to ghost guns, to start making some progress on preventing them from reaching the market. And instead, the government has preferred to just sort of go this route, which um, it's not going to have an effect on crime. So I think most Canadians are kind of asking, well, then why are they doing this? Yeah. And, you know, I I look at it and I I ask myself when it seems so obvious and these questions around ghost guns and gun parts and those type of things all seem so obvious. uh, My my question is, it's like, why did we do this? What is the point of this? Is this just a sort of. Uh, uh, demonstrative. It's like, hey, w- look, we're doing something. Um, is this like a step towards further legislation? Like, are you worried that there's going to be more legislation coming, like long gun ban, that type of thing? Or is this just kind of like a like a smoke and mirrors thing? I guess I'm just at, I'm at a loss as to why we are even doing this, you know? 
I think, and and some listeners may think that this is just bias, but I mean, I've been covering this for 12 years and I come at it from the perspective of forensic psychology because that's what my background is. So like, I think about it from a criminal, like what does a criminal think? Um, and C21, there is going to be more coming. So to go back to that, there is, we've been told to expect a new order in council that will expand the number of rifles banned because C21 bans effectively all semi-automatic rifles they're created from this point forward. The law literally says any gun that was designed after C-21 passes, that's semi-automatic and center fire essentially, um, is a rifle will be banned. But all the ones that currently exist that weren't banned in May of 2020 are currently legal, but we're expecting those to change with this new order in council we've been told to expect. They're also going to be releasing uh, probably at the same time in that order in council, another order in council that uh, seeks to restrict magazine capacity or or change it because right now long guns that are rifles are limited to five rounds. Uh, so far, that's been done by a, putting a rivet in the body of the magazine to prevent it from loading more. They want to change that so that now they have to be welded or crimped or something like that. So there, there is more coming. We know that. I think that the reasoning why, given there's not – okay, people may think this is biased, but I, I can't come up with a reason why telling gun owners that the guns they have they can keep, which is what they've done with handguns and AR-15s. Uh, constitutes an improvement in safety in any perceptible way, given licensed gun owners are responsible for less than 2% of violent crime in the country, that it's largely political. And it seems like uh, what they've kind of been doing is waiting for the gun control legislation to create the rise in voter intent that they've been waiting to see. It hasn't since for the past three years, it has not created a perceptible bump in liberal vote intent. So they seem to almost just kind of be doubling down, going harder into it and going, well, eventually people will see us as anti-gun and then they'll vote for us. Right. Um, but I think I, I speak for most Canadians. I This is my mortgage. It's a company I've owned for 12 years. We have employees and everything. Um, gun politics isn't even the, the biggest ballot box issue for me. Like I have kids getting a doctor in Kelowna is almost impossible. Finding daycare is very difficult. You know, my son is three years old. What kind of house is he going to be able to afford when he's 19 or 20? These are much more pressing issues. How how expensive is the chicken I'm buying at the right. superstore? These are far greater issues for me. And I think most Canadians then, well, the handguns that I bought five years ago, I can't do anything with now. They just right. got to stay in my safe or go to the range. And then I guess when I die, they'll be destroyed. That'll be that. It's not, you know, that it's just a weird it's a weird situation to be in, but I think it's they just keep doubling down. And it hasn't helped that the minister in charge of all of this, we've had three of them. And it's been Bill Blair, Marco Medicino, and now Dominic LeBlanc. And it's almost like every time they change, the next one comes in, takes a fresh view and goes, we need to do more. Right. And yeah. no one is going like, hey, hey, everyone, is there a right amount of gun control? Or should we just keep getting more? You know, right? Like, or or a better way, like we're talking about with the parts and stuff. Unfortunately, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to leave it there. But Daniel Fritter, the owner of Caliber, uh, Canada's largest gun magazine, um, some really interesting information, uh, especially for people who are gun owners or or like to you know go to the range or shoot. Um, yeah, thank you so much for for your time and for weighing in on this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
Hello and welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. My name is Scott Schantz filling in today. Lots of news over the week and lots of discussion about Park Board. Mayor Ken Sim uh, put this motion in place to abolish the Vancouver Park Board. It passed and uh, it's been chaos kind of ever since then. So to get bring us up to speed on sort of where we are now and where we're going from here, former Park Board Commissioner and now Vice President of Mount Pleasant Community Centre Association, Anita Romaniak is with us. Hi, Anita. How are you? I am fine. Good afternoon. Um, Thanks so much for being on the show today. Can you bring us up to speed? Because I think for a lot of people, myself included, there's been park board headlines kind of every day. And it's like, this is passed. People have spoken out against it. People have spoken out in favor of it. Where do we stand? And um, what's going to happen next with regards to the park board in Vancouver? Well, for a start, the park commissioners on Monday... uh, the majority of them, four out of seven, succeeded in passing a motion uh, opposing uh, the abolition of the park board, uh, although obviously council passed it. But um, they also added a clause that park board uh, business should proceed as usual. And uh, I would say that it is doing so. I was just in a meeting yesterday on behalf of my community center association because we're doing uh, an arts project uh, together with uh, Park Board, and everything went you know very professionally, um, and we're going ahead with the arts project. So uh, I think Park Board staff are being very professional and continuing on with the job they have to do. Um, the community center associations are obviously not very happy, most of them, because uh, you've probably seen that they did a press release in opposition. Uh, Now, there's a lot of uncertainty behind all this, uh, even though um, Mayor Seam has said that uh, the park board uh, functioning uh, will continue if they're even if they ab- abolish the park board, but because he said uh, during the election that he wouldn't abolish the park board and changed his mind, everybody's kind of on tenterhooks because we don't know uh, really what is going to happen if this goes through. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, that, and at that point, for people who might not be familiar, like we know that we've had a park board, and uh, Ken Sim is talking about removing it. Explain to us what the park board board does, like on a daily basis, why it's important to have one, because lots of other cities don't have park boards, but they still have well-functioning parks. Yes, although I, I would certainly say that... Um, by and large, Vancouver does too, and we have you know over 200 parks and over 20 community center associations, bus links, and pools. So uh, I can't see that the system is malfunctioning myself. Uh, but um, uh, what having a, an elected park board does is that it gives you uh, both a conduit to, to the community if you have an issue, you can get a hold of the parks commissioners uh, by email or uh, phone, the, you know, get a hold of 
them via the park board office, and it gives accountability that you don't get from an elect, uh, a non-elected parks committee or whatever they have. Uh, um, and certainly the relationship between the park board and the community center associations, we all have liaison commissioners. Um, we can get in touch with them. They come to some of our meetings. So there also is a direct, uh, for us, there also is a direct link to the park commissioners. And that is something that's been invaluable over the years. I've been with community center associations for a long time. Right. And having that liaison is very important. What what will this do to these community centers and community center associations if the park board is ultimately scrapped? Is that going to make things harder for community centers? Uh, is it going to create more work? Is it going to change the way that people are going to be able to interact with community centers? What's that going to look like? Uh, hopefully... Not. I mean, we do have a joint operating agreement with the park board, and we've been told that that will uh, illegally, I mean, it's a legal contract, that will continue. There is some uncertainty there because the the conduit with the parks commissioners is not, would be gone. Um, I don't know how they plan to keep, you know, that kind of connection, but the legal agreement remains in place. Uh but the main fear is that after 10 years, we have to have the joint operating agreement um, reviewed. And if the part board is gone, um, there is some fear with the community center associations, because I'm in touch with other ones as well as my own, that uh, uh there may be some changes to the contract that um, the city would want to change. We don't know. I mean, that that uncertainty weighs down on people. Mount Pleasant comes up at the end of 2027. Uh, so there is, you know, there is just so much uncertainty, uh, and we don't know what's going to happen because, of course, even though councils passed. We don't know what's going to happen with the province and the provincial government is the one that actually has to change the charter. Right. Okay. Well, that's important information. And I, you know, obviously we don't want things to change with the community centers. Those are like valuable resources to everyone in the city. Um, I'd love to know what you think. 604-280-9898 to weigh in on this, uh, the decision around the park board and where you think it could go, what's going to happen. Obviously a lot still up in the air uh, with regards to that, but it's something that we're watching and paying really close attention to. Thank you so much, Anita Romaniak, former park board commissioner. She's now the vice president of Mount Pleasant Community Center Association. Thanks so much for coming on today and giving us some information. It's really appreciated. Thank you. and happy Friday. I hope you are uh, having a great one getting ready for your weekend. My name is Scott Shantz. I'm filling in for Jill today. And do you think that our military should be the people who take care of national emergencies for us? We had a huge, crazy, terrible wildfire season this summer. The military got involved. When there's floods, they get involved. Whenever anything happens, the military gets involved, which is good. I'm glad that they do. We need to, you know, full court press when that stuff happens. But what about a national emergency response team? 
doesn't does it feel like we need one of those? Does it feel like maybe the military should be focusing on focusing on military stuff? There's a conversation happening around that right now nationally. And here to weigh in is Ken McMullen. He's a fire chief in Red Deer, Alberta, and president of the Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us today, Ken. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for your interest in the story. Yeah, of course. So like, do we have, we don't have a national emergency response team, right? There's nobody that does that uh, across Canada. Like, that's not a service that we have right now. We currently don't have a national, what we will call a national fire administration, as an example. Other countries uh, that you're familiar with, the United States, Japan, Australia, do utilize national fire administration type uh, formats in their federal government. We do not have that in Canada. You are correct. And so when a national emergency happens, is it basically, okay, if they can't, if if the local people can't handle it, call the military? You know, it, it, a lot of emergencies start. Oh, Ken? So it, you, have I lost you there? No, I'm here. You cut out just for a second there. You said a lot of emergencies start, and then we lost you. Oh, there, there you go. Well, they start at the municipal level. Mm-hmm. So our municipal often are our firefighters, uh, with the greatest of respect to our colleagues in police and paramedicine. Uh, our fire departments are primarily the number one group that responds to all all hazards uh, within our communities. And so there's a lot of uh, communications and relationships between other province and territories. Uh, we don't, as the municipalities, make the call for whether or not Canadian Armed Forces are, are called in to support. Okay. So what happens, like, we had a huge, um, you know, fire season. Uh, you know, you would know firsthand, of course, how, how difficult it was. What difference would having a national uh, team, a national emergency response make? How dramatic would the difference be? Well, well, we if we use the comparators of the other countries that use this type of model, uh, it, it's a huge difference from that collaboration coordination perspective of just getting resources where they need to be. As, as you mentioned, uh, the wildfire season of 2023 was one like we've never seen before. And unfortunately, the reality is that 2024 isn't looking a whole lot better. So we've got some work ahead of us. And uh, the Canadian fire chiefs have gone on record for advocating for a national fire administration and think that these are really good examples of why it would be beneficial. And would it be made up, like you guys, the fire chiefs are, are all in favor of it, would it be made up of, of the current like fire departments and the emergency personnel that we have working together? Or is this an entire new service that, you know, uh, new employees, new hires that would work with you guys? Well, I think that all options are on the table, and we are prepared to stand shoulder to shoulder with our elected officials to determine the best model for Canada. We certainly are uh, thankful that the options are even being considered at the federal level right now. It has not been considered in the past, so these are all positive changes, and uh, we will work together to determine best practices. We have authored a report out of the Canadian Fire Chiefs that looks at different models, and there's, there's not the exact model that's perfect for Canada. So let's work together to determine what that model is. Yeah, I really like that. That's such a, a positive outlook on this thing. You know, I, you're, you're right. I, I mean, I don't know anything about fighting a forest fire. I'm really glad that we have people like you to do that. But it does seem like it's getting worse, uh, sort of season by season. And we should do our best to get in front of this, you know, right now. And uh, Harjit Sejan has said that 
we are likely going to get some version of, of this emergency response team nationally, whatever that looks like. But let's just get started, right? As opposed to trying to back and forth, figure out what it is. So let me ask you this. It's the military still helps out. And of course, in some contexts, they might still help out. This isn't saying that we won't use the military. It's like you say, let's, um, let's put all the options on the table. Let's figure out what's going to work best. It'll be different things in different situations in different in different places. But what is it like when the military comes in and tries to integrate with firefighters? I imagine there has to be some like learning curve or, you know, kind of um, logistical like hiccups or speed bumps there. Or is it like, do they know what they're doing? Smooth move. Explain that to me. Well, again, and, and every situation is a little bit different. Uh, I've, I've been very fortunate to work with our uh, esteemed colleagues in the Canadian Armed Forces in the past, whether that be in flood situations in southern Alberta, whether that be in wildfires here in Alberta as well. Uh, our military does a tremendous job of supporting uh, what we are doing on the front lines. I think the challenge is, although the Canadian Armed Forces has firefighters amongst the rank system, that is not is who is being deployed to assist in natural disasters. It is uh, men and women that typically come with a very specific task at hand, and so there is some uh, conversations that have to take place. There's some learning on both sides of the command structure as far as who are you getting your reports from, who are you getting your directions from, and uh, so it takes time to integrate our armed force colleagues when we're working in the types of events that municipal uh, officials typically lead. Wildfires, floods, uh, natural disasters are often led municipally, uh, supported by provinces and feds. Okay. Um, Ken, what else do fire chiefs and emergency responders need from governments, both locally and nationally, to help respond to emergencies like this in our country? Yeah, great question. And and, uh, you're just off the heels of a very big week that we spent in Ottawa last week. I talked to one of your colleagues last week when I was in Ottawa. And I'm going to change the subject because you've opened the door to the question, we were there asking for three primary things. Uh, One of them is exactly what we just talked about, which is the creation of a National Fire Administration. So I won't get further into that other than anywhere a municipality wants to support that, we're going to take your support and run with it. Uh, We talked about the re-implementation of the JEP funding, which is the Joint Emergency Preparedness Program, which was a fund uh, through the, the federal government available up until 2013, Uh, that was used by municipalities to apply for specialty training and specialty equipment. So we've asked governments to reconsider putting that back into play. Last and certainly not uh, of least importance is the increase to the volunteer firefighter tax credit. Currently sits at $3,000 annually, and we've asked the federal government to consider increasing that to $10,000. Uh, annually. So those are really the the topics on the table right now that we're putting front of mind to our elected officials. Okay, well, I will say that all of those seem um, like very realistic, practical, doable things that I think would make a difference. More volunteer firefighters, uh, more resources, and more training for people who uh, are going to come up against this stuff. Because like we've sort of talked about, it's it's not going away, and it's something that our country is going to have to grapple with uh, in the coming months and years. But I am glad that we have people like yourself and all of the brave, great firefighters, military, and emergency personnel across the country that do 
that. So, Ken, thank you, and thank you for coming on uh, this afternoon and sharing some information with us. Um, really appreciate your time today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for covering the story. You and your listeners stay safe and enjoy a safe holiday season. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.